Ecclesiastes 2, Happiness and the Work-Life Balance. Today, I'd like to continue our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't listened to the first part, Finding Meaning in Life, make time to do so, as it will lay a solid basis for where I'd like to go in this podcast. Ecclesiastes is written to give us a very sobering reality check, one that we need if we want to live a good life. Today, I'd like to focus on the following three questions. Should my job determine how happy I am or am not? What does the Bible say about keeping a work-life balance? And while we expect Christ's return at any moment, should we consider the fact that we may die before he comes? As I said before, I believe King Solomon is the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, and God gave him extreme wealth, power, and influence to prove that all these things that we so often long for are really meaningless. None of us will ever have the natural success that Solomon enjoyed, and that's okay. God gave it to him and ensured that we had record of it to prove to us the foolishness of prioritizing things in this world. We can learn from Solomon's example. To him was given extreme wisdom, what we now call spiritual discernment, and yet he also made critical mistakes that would cost his son a kingdom. See 1 Kings chapter 12. Let's learn the answers to our own big questions as we look at the Bible. Ecclesiastes 2 starts off with Solomon purposing to discover what we humans should do with our lives. He goes on to detail how he invested himself in building projects, businesses, and entertainment, all of which are familiar to us. I mean, how often has the message that productivity leads to a fulfilled life been presented to us? Many times we Christians are tempted to lose ourselves in the projects we undertake, maybe our jobs, our family, or the blizzard of entertainment options that now exist, and yet nothing satisfies. Solomon shows us in verse 11 that the very things he had spent years building up now became a source of frustration to him. He writes, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on all the, on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. We know that money doesn't bring happiness, but why do we then spend so much time trying to gain the next dollar? Paul told us to live simply. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8-10, to 10, he writes, And having food and raiment, which is clothing, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts or desires, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The drive to earn money is at the heart of the most sinful and pervasive aspects of our global culture. A 2019 market analysis on PR Newswire put the pornography industry revenue in the U.S. alone at $35 billion. Globally, some estimates put it at almost $100 billion every year. In a 2019 study by the Rand Corporation, the illegal drug industry averages about $150 billion in the U.S. alone each year. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, the studies I'm referencing are hyperlinked to the actual article or the blog post at thelwbc.com. I don't need to talk about the harmful effects of both the porn drug and the literal drugs. We know both are addictive, shatter lives, and ruin self-respect. My focus today is on what God expects from you and me. While the world clearly will go to any lengths to make money, God has clear boundaries about how much of a role work and the pursuit of money should play in the lives of his children. I want to identify two boundaries as we answer our first two questions. Again, those questions are, should my job determine how happy I am or am not? And what does the Bible say about keeping a work-life balance? First boundary, the work you do should be meaningful, but not give you a sense of meaning. Secondly, also you should enjoy your work but not be made happy by it. Let me explain what I mean in both of those sentences. Ecclesiastes 2.25 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat 
and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Your job should be something that you enjoy doing, not just something you do to pay the bills. Now, I realize this is not always possible, and I'm, I'm not saying you're sinning if you don't like your job. Believe me, I've been there too. But no matter how long it takes, try to get yourself in a position that you enjoy, because this is part of the blessing that God has for you in this world, according to the scripture we just read. It may also lengthen your life and your health by minimizing the negative effects of stress that you'll otherwise face. Solomon warns us against keeping a job you don't enjoy or a job that is high pressure when he says, For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity, meaning it is foolish or meaningless. That's verse 23. Have you ever lost a night's sleep because of your job? As a teacher, I have many times. But that's not God's plan. Neither is remaining in a toxic work environment. Think about it. How many times do you complain about your job? Does it make you feel happy or emotionally refreshed to gripe about your supervisors, coworkers, or the demanding hours? Probably not. As the Bible shows us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, we Christians are called to keep our minds on things that are good and not meditate upon things that frustrate us. If we don't, we'll constantly have our spirit in turmoil, which works against our health. And sometimes people don't think that God cares about this or that this is a part of God's uh, great economy. But it's important to realize that God cares about every detail of your life, not just your soul. He also cares about your body and your emotions and your relationships as well. So let's talk about God's idea of a work-life balance. The work-life balance that God calls for requires us to leave our job at our job. When the people we work with, their personal problems or the work itself constantly drains you, and I mean in a negative way, emotionally or spiritually, it's time to stop and ask God to either change the circumstance or make a way for you to leave. God's plan for work is a job that we enjoy and work that allows us to rest easy at night with a clear conscience. We can see this from the work environment that God provided for Adam. I have a hard time imagining Adam complaining to Eve at night about the stresses of gardening, especially when weeds and the miniature terrorists that we call bugs didn't exist, at least not as we know now. Even in a perfect world where Adam worked from home, as we would say, in the Garden of Eden, where Adam worked from home, everything all stopped at night when it was time to worship God, spend time with his family, and rest easy. He didn't bring it home. He left it out there. That was his work. And in the evening time, it was time for fellowship, time for family, and time to rest. Now, let's look back at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to repeat that earlier verse, but I also want to read the the verse right after. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, I mentioned that your work should be meaningful, but it should not give you meaning. I want to repeat that so you'll be sure to get the difference. Your work should be meaningful, but it should not give you meaning. Now, this is a big subject, and it's one that I'm going to slant towards the men in the audience for a moment, because generally speaking, we tend to judge our self-worth by our accomplishments, which are often job-related, and we do tend to do this more than women do. Brothers, God expects us to do our best at our jobs, but don't let the drive to provide for yourself or your family consume you. Keep everything in balance. Let me share a personal story. Like most of you know, in 2016, I left my teaching job because of my Christian principles. As painful as it was to separate from students that I genuinely loved and cared about, the hardest part was dealing with the fact that I had no idea what to do next. Without realizing it, I equated my own self-worth with being a teacher. When that was taken away from me, I floundered in depression for several years. Somewhere in the chaos of my churning emotions and my wife's gracious patience, this patience, our good and loving Heavenly Father opened my eyes to understand where I had been erring. 
You see, like many others, I depended on my job to give me a sense of meaning, to give a sense of meaning to my life. And I hadn't realized I was doing that. Teaching, coaching, encouraging, correcting, it's all part of my nature. But while those are natural human tendencies that God placed within me for his purpose, God calls us to draw every scrap of our sense of meaning from him alone. And through this experience, God showed me that I subconsciously gave to my work what belonged to him. Remember, the very God-given aspects of your character can work against you if you don't constantly keep an eye on them. For example, a caring, open-hearted person can be drawn into a wrong relationship if he or she doesn't keep that part of his or her nature under control. Now let me swing this thought over to my sisters. Women often tend to draw their sense of meaning from their relationships or the lack of relationships in their lives. And this can be romantic relationships or familial relationships, any other kind of relationship, friends, whatever. But what if all of that was unexpectedly stripped away from you? What if you lost every person you ever cared about or your friends and family for some reason decided to shun you? Would you still feel that your life mattered? Now I'm here to tell you that it would and it does. Sometimes the service that is done to others is what fuels a woman's sense of meaningfulness, giving her a sense of value because she feels needed. But remember, sister, your true value lies in simply who you are, not what you do. As a daughter of the king who is living a surrendered life to your heavenly father, your true value comes from being his light in this dark world, not even in the service that you offer to him or to others. Think of Martha who found meaning in serving others while Mary found meaning for her life in her spiritual relationship to Christ. Both were good women. Both were daughters of God. But one, Mary, had truly grasped the understanding of a valuable life. My question is, which woman are you? Please understand that it is right and good to serve others. Again, we're talking all about balance here. And it is totally normal for that spark for your service to spark good feelings or for within all of us as Christians, male or female. But again, it isn't the source of our life's value. It is an expression of our of our love for God and for each other. Men and women, if the day comes that you can't work because of a disability or serve because of the relationships in your life no longer exist, you can still have a meaningful life if you draw meaning only from God. I want to make sure this is clear because it's so important. You see, as long as we draw meaning from anything else but Christ himself, we Christians are vulnerable. Our enemy will have the power to disrupt our minds and our lives by removing the things that give us value or meaning to our lives until we accept that our life is meaningful because Christ is revealing himself to us and revealing himself through us. Remember the scripture. It says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That's from Matthew 6, verse 33. Take a moment to pause, think, reflect about all we've talked about so far. And then when you're ready, let's pick back up. All right, so as long as we have Christ, it's important to remember that everything else will be all right. Now, the last thing I want to point out from this beautiful chapter is Solomon's reminder that our work and our efforts are temporal. You may remember learning in school about King Henry VIII of England. He was the Tudor monarch who married six times and had two of his wives beheaded in his relentless pursuit of a legitimate heir. After endless intrigue, assassinations, family divisions, and war, this family line died out when Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth, refused to marry. Perhaps it's not too surprising, given that her father executed her mother publicly. The point is, all of Henry's efforts, Henry VIII, all of his efforts to build a kingdom fell due to the choices of someone who lived after him. Now, my question is, how many thousand died in war and how many thousands of people died in war and civil strife to preserve a kingdom that would only last about 120 years? 
it was all temporal. The same can be said of our work, be it government, healthcare, businesses, etc. You can devote 30 years of your life to an organization and they may never promote you. Or if you're a manager or a vice president, when the day will come when you will have to retire and somebody else will take your place. So how much does that contribute to leading a good life in the end? My point is here that we need to refocus our thinking and our thoughts so that we are seeing a good life through the lens of God's word and not through the social influences that surround us, not through what society presses into us or what we ourselves imagine. We are called to look at everything through the lens of the word of God. Because of this inability to control what happens after we leave our jobs or after we leave this world, Solomon said life is meaningless if we define it by our work. As he writes in verses 18 to 20 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knows whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet he shall have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. Wow. So all that work that was once giving him joy and pleasure, and he now comes to abhor it because he realizes that everything we do is temporal. So therefore, again, keeping in mind that God is using Solomon as a sort of guinea pig. I hate to use that expression, but so you get what I mean. God is allowing Solomon to be the one to experience all these things, the extreme good and the extreme bad of life, so that you and I can look at his example and draw the lessons we need from his own word, from God's own word, to lead a good life in our own time and existence upon this planet. When we live with the reality that our lives are temporal and that we are here for today and are not guaranteed tomorrow, when we live with this reality constantly in our thoughts, it will make us cut back on those late hours at the job and devote more time to the aspects of life that really matter. It will also help us keep things in balance where we're not devoting too much time to entertainment and leisure or pleasure in this world, but we're devoting keeping everything in balance so that we are neither being too much on one side or on the other. Instead of getting more things off of our to-do list, we will spend more time thinking about what is worth putting on our to-do list. Truly, before you decide to do something, ask yourself, does this really matter? I hope it's okay to share this, but I recently, we had a couple in our church here that got uh, got renewed their vows, and we had a little ceremony for them at the church. I won't call their name, so I don't embarrass them, but if you're part of our church, you know who they are. <laughs> and so they had a little ceremony, and this couple sat down and took the time to put a bunch of balloons on a ark uh, to celebrate their years of marriage together. And uh, those it was only for one afternoon or two, I guess it would probably pop you know, within a day or so. And I asked the the brother involved, I said, how long did that take you? Is that about probably about an hour? And he said, yeah, it took about an hour to get all those balloons up there. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful use of time. What a wonderful, meaningful way to use your time. It really touched me because I thought, even though this is only going to be used once and probably only going to last maybe a day, etc., before they all pop or whatever, taking the time to build and do something like this is such a greater, a better use of time than filling it up or do, taking something else that we had to get done or getting emails out or whatever else. Because in the grand scheme of things, this is something that's worth putting on your to-do list. It's going to enrich your life. It would enrich their, their thoughts and their relationship, etc. Now, I think for us all as, as uh, Christians, married, single, whatever we are, what we want to do is think about what do we put on our to-do list and ask ourselves, is it really worth it? Before you commit to doing something, is it really worth it?
Instead of fitting God into your schedule, if you live with the reality that life is temporal and that we constantly have this in our thoughts, instead of fitting God into our schedule, we'll give him more of our attention. Instead of surrounding ourselves with people who carry toxic atmospheres, we will replace them with people who reinforce our faith and deepen our fellowship with each other. Or we'll use the time that we have with toxic people to point them to a better life that Christ can offer. Finally, Solomon reminds us here that overall life is brief. Now, as Christians who live in the shadows of the coming of Christ, we believe that he will come before our life is over, but that is not guaranteed. Many sometimes feel that it is a lack of faith to have things such as life insurance or a will, but that is not written in scripture and therefore should not be taught. If you have been born again, your soul is immortal, for God's life dwells within it, but your body is not immortal. Ecclesiastes 2.14 and many other scriptures tell us that everyone must die. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness, and I myself perceived also that one event happens to them all. Therefore, outside of a Simeon-like experience with God promising you that you will not die before the rapture, that you will not die before Christ returns, keep in mind that you can leave this world at any time and make appropriate preparations both spiritually and naturally. The Bible keeps repeating this theme of a temporal life. I believe God knows our nature as humans. Without constant reminders, we become oblivious to our reality and we treat life as though we are immortal. Even with tombstones all around us and terrorism claiming lives every day, billions around this planet still live without thinking about their upcoming appointment with a furious God. But if you remember that life is temporal, you can make the choice to live for him and also to make each moment of your natural life as full and as vibrant as possible. Do you have a dream you've been putting off? Why not start the journey? An activity that you've always wanted to do? Get going. You see, as I heard it said, it's very true. We weren't just born to pay bills and die. Making each moment vibrant, as God's word will allow you to do, is all part of having a good life. Next time we want to delve into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we want to look at the subjects, the questions, why does life have phases? And how do those phases affect us? And how can we Christians navigate them while living in an ungodly world? This is Brother Joseph in the Pastor's Corner here at DLWBC.com. Until we meet again, live simply, live well, and may God bless you.